Uh, play it from the top, I'm gonna stay in. Let me get a track to make sure I'm. What's up, y'all? Welcome, welcome back to the Lunchtime Foolery Podcast. Your boy Raheem Dawn back in the mic. And today I have a very special guest with me. It is my grandmother, Marie Dunwall. So go ahead and say what's up. What's up? <laughs> I'm here. I'm present in the house. <laughs> Just a little interview, you know, picking her brains to chop it up with my people. So let's go ahead and start this. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana all my life. I was born January 3rd, 1956, to uh, 11 of us. So Mm -hmm. I have five sisters and five brothers. I'm the gifted one. I'm the seventh child. (laughs) Everybody tell me they problems. Like I'm the problem solver, but I'm the the backbone, so they say. Yeah, they used to call me the shack bully, but that wasn't for a bad reason. What does shack bully mean? I used to clean up the house. Cause that's the way my daddy liked to see it when he comes from work. So if you come in the area that I clean, please leave it as you came in when you saw it. So if you don't, you're going to get some shack bully. <laughs> what does shack bully do? I'm going to put you out. <laughs> I'm going to put you out. Put you out the whole house, not just the room. <laughs> so but That's what they used to call me. What are some of your fondest memories as a kid or a teenager growing up in the 1950s uh, through 70s? Oh, my goodness. Oh, baby. You know, we didn't know we was poor. <laughs> i tell you that. Uh, we never went to bed hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never was in the darkness unless we turned the lights off. We was never, you know, not like that. Uh, my mama was a nurse at a hospital called Sarah Mayo. And my daddy worked as a longshoreman. For many years uh, on the riverfront. And uh, I went to uh, Daniel number two school. And I went to uh, Lafayette school. I went to, that was at, uh, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade. And then I went to Andrew J. Bell. And then I went to John McDonald Senior High School where I graduated in 75. <clears throat> I got married in 74 at the age of 18. Turned 18 and got married nine years later. I'm sorry, nine days later. And and stood married for over 23 years. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, why, why do you think you got married so early? Well... Y'all couldn't imagine me getting married right now, and I'm 19. Well, you know, I I had that old soul, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess we was ready for it. I mean, got engaged at 16. Can you believe that? But they didn't mm. know I was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Peter asked my dad to marry me. I guess I was maybe 17. And then it was, took a whole year to, um, to plan a wedding and then got married January the, the 12th. 1974. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's different back it was then. Different time. Uh, people was getting married early, you know, back in those times. Um, I didn't have to, you know, it wasn't no shotgun thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, when you say you, you're in love, I love him. You know. <laughs> How did <laughs> you meet my grandpa? Uh, I met him at uh, Sarkat dance. That's what they used to call it. 
but it was uh it was given by uh this high school called um uh St. Mary's and my I was accompanied by my brother Henry. I was about 13, 14 years old and this little BDI man kept looking at me and I told my brother, I said, keep looking at me. But he was telling my, me that I was pretty. But my brother went over and approached him and said, hey man, you know, what's up? He said, I was just saying that your sister pretty. Well, I didn't know who he was because he had a girl by the hand. So what he said, I'm pretty <laughs> for when he got a girlfriend. And so uh, long story short, uh, I went to school with one of the girls that lived in the neighborhood where he lived. And I saw him again. And I, at this time, I was maybe about 15. And that's when I gave him my phone number. But uh, he came over to the house maybe twice, and my daddy ran him off <laughs> <laughs> until I was like 17, you know? So, and that's how, yeah, I met him at a sock hop dance. Uh, Peter's four years older than me. So, and he was accompanied by a girl that went to the school. But uh, that's how I met him at St. Mary's Academy, 1969. Uh, Benny and the Jets were playing on the radio. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I remember that. That's funny, but I remember. <laughs> What's a psychop dance? It's like a, a big party that certain schools give. If you have a, if you're in a club with some girls, they have psychop. Oh, waistline, what you mean by that? Take a, a measuring tape and put it around your waist and whatever number comes on that, that's how much you pay to get in the, into the dance. Wow. So if your waist is 32, you pay 32 cents. If your waist is 40, you pay 40 cents. If your waist is 23, you pay 23 cents. <laughs> so they call it soccer, which means that your waist, tennis shoes and uh, you have them big bobby socks we used to wear around your ankles. You, this girl just said, make their legs look big. I, I guess I was a skinny girl thing because I didn't need no socks to make my legs look big. <laughs> you know, but sock hop, that's what it was. Uh, you may opening up some brain cells in my head, man. I ain't talked about that kind of thing in a long time. <laughs> if you were to put your life into a soundtrack, give me four to five songs that represent Marie Dunwall. Huh. Sim the best. <laughs> That's by Tina Turner. Uh, make a joyful noise. <laughs> I'm that because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm loud sometimes, but it's always joyful. I don't scream at nobody unless I have to. Um, I say family reunion because I love my family that much. Mm -hmm. You know, and a birthday song because we have a birthday every day. Every yeah. day you live. You get a day old. Mm -hmm. So every time we come by your house, we see you just have like a closet full of hats. How did you become the hat lady? Uh, hat lady. Hmm. Well, my dad always wore a hat. And I used to always admire my daddy in his hats. Though I used to sneak his, his uh, derby hats back in the day and wear them. And people used to compliment me. Oh, you got a face for hats. So when I was in uh, Southmore in school, I started to model hats um, back in the days. Uh, and I, I I just got addicted to wearing them. I, I liked them. So, oh, God, I got some hats. 
uh, last count, I had like about 104. 104. But <laughs> Katrina took a few of them. Yeah, I got 104. But Katrina took a few of them. I've had, well, I, I'll say altogether, I probably have about 200. I've given hats away. I've donated hats. But I, the ones that I kept now is my most fashionable hats. Mm-hmm. Now, the other ones I gave away was went out of style. So, but that's how, you know, so now I got that cliche. I wore a hat to work every day. I worked for this law firm back in 1978, big time, you know, white collar, you know, stiff neck law firm. And I went there with a hat. This elderly gentleman by the name of Gertrude Pearson, he says, my, my, I really like that hat on you. And I said, well, I wear hats every day. He said, well, since you do that, every day you wear a hat, I want to see you. So every day I made sure I had a hat on so he could see me. And I had a different hat on for maybe five years straight that he was living at the, at, at the time. He was an older gentleman then, and I was like 20-something years old. Mr. Pearson had to be in his 80s. And he liked me so much because his wife's name was Marie. But he would say, Marie. <laughs> That's what he would call me. But, yeah, I, I, wore, I, wore, I wore them more then than I do now. And I still put one on every now and then, but not like I did before. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned that you modeled hats in, in your sophomore year of high school. How did that go? Oh, it was it was great. Um, <clears throat> my daddy let me be exposed to that type of you know thing back in the day, but then you know it kind of changed. Not only were they interested in the hats, they wanted me to model other stuff and my daddy wasn't going for that because mm-hmm. <laughs> my daddy was the one I went to you know he was the head of the household so you would say something to mama but she would always say go ask your daddy you see yeah. so I would always go to daddy and uh I I I, I liked that I thought I was gonna you know model the head or I did that for a little while and then like I said the agency changed and then that just stopped with your hat choices you seem to have a lot of extravagant hats, you know, different colors. Oh, yeah. And do you think that mm-hmm. that also has an influence in the culture of New Orleans? Hmm. Well, I think so. Um, elderly women nowadays go to church. They always have something on their head. So you see, you know, elders uh, in the church uh, still put hats on their head or some type of a hat on and and and. You know, back in the day, if you look at old pictures and old TV movies, you would see ladies with hats, gloves, and pocketbooks. And that yeah. was a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. You also said that um, a lot of your hats were taken by Hurricane Katrina. How else did the hurricane Yeah, some I were taken by. My son come and snatched me up uh, for one um, during that time. I was more concerned with my hats than it, my hats and my pictures, you know, than anything else. So I packed as many and many and many as I can. I put them in big duffel bags and tied them up. So if I accumulated all this water in the house, it would have just floated. Well, some of them got surled. Uh, they had little creatures in the house. So they were on top of those bags when I got here. As uh, you know, rat or what have mm. you, must have smelled, you know, perfume or whatever in the bag, and they ate had eaten through it. 
So I didn't even want to open up the bag to see what I lost. You know, so whatever it was, I just left it alone. I didn't want to see it. <laughs> so I had so many more. If I think about that one or I see that one on a picture, then that will bring me back to the one that I lost. But I got some fine ones. And I right now, again, today, I'm collecting more like I need to. I can show you six of them now with still tickets on them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I never pulled the tag off. <laughs> mm -hmm. Other than the effect of Katrina on your your fashion sense, how how else did it affect you and your family? Well, baby, you know, it, it, it displaced us uh, for over 100 days. Um, couldn't back come back to the city. Katrina happened in uh, August the 29th of 2005, I'll never forget. I had just given my daughter a birthday party when she turned 30 years old on the 20th. And here come Katrina nine days later that well, I would have never thought. Uh, but it, water in the house, I guess, between three and four feet. You know, you had to come back and gut out walls and throw out furniture. And oh my, it was just, you know, that's one of those uh, mother nature things you, you have no control over. Just got to keep yourself safe because you can always replace that materialistic stuff. And as long as everybody was safe, you know, all of, all of those things that we think is important, it's not. Just get just just get someplace and stay safe. Mm -hmm. And my son would come and snatch me up in a minute. Mommy got to get out of here. But a lot of times I thought I can well it out. But once the electricity and all goes, you really can't stay. You know, it really not. You'd probably be the only one on the block, you know, within yeah, miles from somebody. And you could be, be just a sitting target. Yeah, yeah, it could be a sitting target for for something crazy. So it's best to just go ahead and just get away from it. You know. But we've overcome it. A uh, few storms here, but thank God that everybody's been safe, you know, and want to continue to be like that way. Being born in the fifties, remember you said you're born in 1956. You were born without yeah. your rights. So, what are some memories you can identify ah. about the racial climate growing up in New Orleans? Well, you know, baby, I think about that, but you know, I'm, uh, you know, you work around people. You know, I've always worked in a law field and you work around people and you never think that they feel some type of way, you know, until you literally hear it. And uh, um, I've never been directly facing a thing like that. I've never been told if I chose this somewhere on a, on a transit that I'm going to move. I don't know how that would have went with me. I mean, move way. You know, that would have been my mm -hmm. response, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, because I, I know I wouldn't have. But I, I'm, you know, I've heard people that's a, you know, a little bit more older than me, like maybe born in 50, 51. I got friends that they actually experienced that, but I never have. You know, I have a dear friend. Uh, we've been knowing each other 40 something years and she's six years older than me. And. She's experienced that and I never have, you know, I, I've never had anybody to just come at me in a negative like that. And I thank God they haven't, uh, even in my young age, you know, um, now my mother got so settled. It's like, I look behind me cause I'm wondering who you talking to. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just who I am. I would turn around and ask, who you, who were they talking to? Because if you didn't say my name, you ain't talking to me because I'm not, hey, you, I'm not that person. I'm not her at all. So I, you know, I used to, when I used to see some things on TV, I would get upset because I know way back then I they'd have real they'd they'd have been choked me. <laughs> I'd have been had plenty, plenty, plenty of fights. Oh yeah. And no doubt. I, and I know it because I know my spirit and I know where I come from. My dad always st- stood tall with what he said and what he spoke. And when he spoke, you sat and you listened. And I always paid attention to what my dad is saying. And I would say quotes right now today that he said to me, you know, just always be aware of yourself, you know, demand your respect. You know, I'm not saying to go and be crazy for somebody to, you know, just run your mouth. But just be firm and don't keep repeating yourself. Say it one time and just keep it moving, you know. But <laughs> I never have been exposed to none of that because I can't really say I would just literally be speaking on terms of what I've been told from somebody else, but I've never experienced it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And glad I haven't. And don't want to. Yeah. Because I think I might make TV. <laughs> yeah 10 other siblings right Mm -hmm. how was that growing up you know just having 10 other kids in the house well well you know we we used to bicker at each other but we never was sisters and brothers that fight you know you hear stories about sisters and brothers literally fighting each other we never did that you know Mm -hmm. we never did that um i remember two big twin beds in a in a room at i used to call them prison bars because it was a, a, a round bed with these bars you know um headboard and football was like like a metal but it was like mm-hmm. like like a a prison bar and i would take the bottom left against the wall my sister deborah and i'm 10 years older than my baby sister lisa you know we were you know and arlene patricia but they was to stay out with grandmother and, and my auntie you see, and by then my sister Joy was married when I was five years old. So she wasn't in the household. My oldest brother Arnold was in the service. Tilton was married. Terry was in the Marines. So did Gregory and Henry besides us. So they would, would have the, the different beds, but you know, everybody had their spot. So it wasn't bad at all. We managed. That's the God's truth. We, we did. Like I said, we were happy children. We didn't know we didn't have. You know, we 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 had a lot of love. I used to remember mother used to take two slices of bread and she would put butter on them or what have you and cut them. And everybody had something, you know, never went to bed hungry. And we never complained about that. We were my mama from the when she used to come from work in her white uniform. I used to remember that just as clear. And in 1869, when I was 13, I think it's September the eighth when Hurricane Bessie came. And I remember this ball of fire rolling down the street and it looked like it was going straight to my mom. And I was like, mom, and I'm running. And she said, you saw that flash? I said, I thought it was a ball of fire. Her mama said, I thought it was the devil rolling. <laughs> I mean, it was weird. It was, it was crazy. I remember that like it was yesterday. They had water up to, to our hip and we walking. I'm walking to the bus stop to get my mom. Ain't that something? Mm-hmm. That's the God's truth. All that came like within that day she was at work. The weather got bad. And yeah, I remember that 
Just like talking about it right out my head. I could see that. I remember just where I was at. Broadway and Fig Street. I remember like yesterday. She's standing at that bus stop waiting for somebody to come get her. How are we going to come get you, Mom, till we, unless we walk? <laughs> we ain't got no boat. <laughs> oh, Lord, I remember that. What does it mean for you to be a hunter? Because that was your last name. Oh. Yeah, that's going to forever be my name. I'm mm-hmm. Hunter Strong. I never go. I'm Marie Hunter Dunwa. I thought about dropping Marie and say Hunter Dunwa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, my daddy was a firm direct man. He was gentle, but strong. He spoke with one tone. Have you heard him talk any louder than what I am? He was angry. Other than that, he had one set tone. And once he spoke, he meant it. And he used to call us knuckleheads. So he would take his hand, his his finger and poke in, a, in your forehead like that. <laughs> <laughs> that means knucklehead. Are you listening? <laughs> when he did you that, you know, it was almost like an embarrassment because yeah. then he called you knucklehead in front of everybody because they knew what he meant. But uh, the hunter name stands firm with me. Proud. Proud of my parents. Miss them every day. They live in me. As many times I look in the mirror and I say, who am I today? I see my mama. I see my daddy. I see my sisters. I see my brothers. But my, the personality I have is many. I had an uncle that was a funny, funny, funny man. He cracked jokes all day. His name was Ed Carter. He's every bit of Red Fox, if you know Red Fox. That's him. He walked like him. He looked like him. He talked like him. And he used to forget our name because he said we had so many of us. He would call me Jezebel. Jezebel, Isabel, you know your name. <laughs> that's what he would say come here girl you know <laughs> why he call you call, i don't even call me that crazy name yeah because he said i i was feisty yeah he would call mm. me that because he said that was feisty I'm, I'm feisty he knew that i would hold my own even though i'm five foot one and a half <laughs> i dare mm. not be bullied at all i don't care if you're seven foot tall you know, the bigger you are, the harder you can tumble, too. <laughs> oh, Lordy. What, what was the feeling that went through you when your first grandchild was born? Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. It's like I had him all over again myself because the, the feeling of, of being a mother for the first time is you can't describe it in words. You can't find a word to define it. It's a, it's like a joy and, and happiness and laughter and pain and you cry and, you know, and then when I, you know, did that with my grandbabies, my goodness, <laughs> when I saw my oldest grandson being born, July 25th, 1994, Sybil was born and I, my daughter delivered him. And once they cleaned him up, he would come straight to my mom. So after his mama, I was the next one that day that he, that he smelled, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And all my babies smell brand new. Y'all smell like, like just new baby. I ain't going to say new <laughs> money because you don't smell like no money. <laughs> smell like, the, I mean, just it's just an unbelievable scent that you never forget. You know, and I've seen uh, my babies born, uh, you know, my daughter's children. Um, 
but I've come to you all once y'all come out too <laughs> mm-hmm. and see my babies, you know. But I, but I, I, I was present with the the four that Onika had. I was there with every last one of them. So it's it's uh my adrenaline is off the chain, if you want to say it. Grandmama knows when she looked into her baby's baby's eyes, she knows the feeling that I'm talking about. Can't can't describe it. <laughs> and I talk about my babies all the time. All the time. I got fine. I got seven grands and two greats. And I got some fine men. How is it like when you have great grandchildren now, you know? Well, I got great grand, you know, which is like I said, you know, it's my babies have had baby, you know, and two of them, Kyle and uh, Sidwood, you know, uh, little Sid will be nine years old come July wow. and little Kaomi will be two in December. Yeah. So y'all get all getting out the way. Mom love y'all. I love that y'all used to sit on my lap and I hug. But now son, y'all, some of y'all get bigger. Y'all don't want all of that. No more, you know. Christopher, he eleven. It's like, Mama, I ain't, I'm a big boy. I know. You can still sit on my lap. Yeah, I don't want none of that. He don't want no part of it. He want no part of that. He don't want no part of it. And that's what I miss. Yeah, yeah. He'll sit next. I'll sit next to you, but he don't want to sit on my lap. <laughs> but I, I miss that. I wish that y'all could stay at the age of eighteen to twenty-four months. <laughs> that was the first, That was the most fun I had with with any of y'all at that age. Mm-hmm. You know, going between them terrible twos and threes. My goodness. Active, active, active. And you was always a smart baby, you. Yes. I remember some things you would say when you was two and four years old. You talk like you were a little wise man. <laughs> There's plenty of sense. And knew how to ask a question, too. You would say, how do you know how to ask that? <laughs> but you did. <laughs> you already knew that was going to happen. You used to say stuff like, yeah, if you help me out, we could finish this task pretty quick. <laughs> you was like about four. Yeah. You say, if you help me out right here, we we could finish this task real quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, now that's 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 out the mouths of babes. And he I said, now what how he got them words to ask that like that? Yeah, you did. <laughs> what are some things you would tell your unborn great grandchildren right now? Oh my. That you're coming into a wonderful family, uh, I always say demand your respect. To demand your respect and to hold your own, you know, don't be a follower. Be your own leader. Do what you need to do for yourself. Because, you know, yourself is first. I don't care if you come into the world by two, threes, fours, and they come in at six. You're going to always be an individual. Mm-hmm. Always an individual. So you got to keep that in mind that, in the travels of your life, you got to set your own destination. There's something that I said, no matter what direction the wind might blow, you got to set your own sails for your own direction. Understand? For your own destination, you got to set the sail right so that wind can blow you right where you need to go. And stay focused and keep your surroundings. Because like I say, life can deal you some things. You can say, well, I, I think I want to do this such and such. But if you don't make those goals or put it down and strike it off as you do it, then you'll never meet it. Don't talk about it. Just do it. Because talk, you could talk all day. Shut your sails right and the wind will blow you right to your destination. 
So you are probably one of the best cooks that I've ever encountered in my life. So (laughs) where do the skills of preparing unique foods that originate from our state come from? Hmm. Well, you know, we as a people, you know, in our culture, I used to hear stories that we will always make a meal from scraps. You know, how, how people of in our culture start to eat these other foods that some people toss out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we start putting our ingredients, things that we like, start experimenting on something that you like, you know? Uh, you know, just like the gumbo. My mama used to go in the refrigerator, and back in the day, y'all don't know about it, but we used to have live chickens in the yard. And my mother would go out there and snatch one of them chickens by the neck and bring them around <laughs> and pop them on that little that little stump we had in, out in the yard. We used to think that was the most craziest thing, you know. That's why my daddy would never let us name the chickens. Because you you going to kill Bobby today? <laughs> you know, so we, never, we, didn't, we couldn't name them. So we go out there and get them chickens, man. We was at 1308 Barone Street. That's how much I... Well, you got my mom opening up her brain cells here. And we would go out there and bring them chickens next, man. And we had a, a it was a, a like a fire escape. That's a fire escape means that a, it's a staircase that comes down at the back of the house. Mm-hmm. And we used to hang them chickens on there and just let the blood drip out. But we would, mom and them would cook the feet. So we would put the feet in the gumbo. We would, we would gut the chicken. We would use the gizzard, you know. Uh, we would use the chicken neck, uh, and even sometimes the chicken parts for our gumbo. And that was our go base. And mother, and you talking about a meal? I'm telling you, man, we used to do stuff like that. And you know, as I grew up, mom used to fix a whole bunch of stuff just from 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 nothing. You know, they could get a can of greens, and you think they then slaved over them greens and cooked them out the yard just with what they put in it. You know, just that that nurturing to taste good and to be feeling, you know, I mean, like I say, we never went to bed hungry and we used to eat rice and butter. Thought that was a big meal, man. That the bread and put um, I used to put sugar on bread with pet milk. We used to do stuff like that. Pet milk was that? Yeah, it's milk in a can, <laughs> evaporated milk. OK. And it was called pet, P-E-T. <laughs> I've like, even never heard of pet milk. Look, I've never heard of pet milk. I got a can of it. I'm gonna show you. It's in the stores. Pet milk. Mm-hmm. And mother used to make pancakes. Used to make it out of biscuit dough. Uh, mother used to do was just flatten it, and they had this syrup called cane syrup. It was in a yellow can, and mother would pop a little can open on each side, and the, the syrup was so thick you would have to blow in the can for it to come out the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to remember things like that, man. I bet your daddy, re- your daddy remember that because we did it, you know, mm-hmm. even after he was born. Yeah, they remember those. Ask him about that cane syrup in the yellow can. He'll tell you. <laughs> That's so would funny. you say you learned how to cook from your mom? Yeah, from mother. My mama stood in the kitchen cooking. Um, she had broke ankle. When I was three months old, and she had had trouble with that ankle for years. She was to get a chair, pull up to that stove, and she would cook meals all day sitting down. Reach me that, reach me that, reach me that. 
Now, I wasn't so up in the kitchen with the cooking. I was the cleanup girl. My sister Deborah was the one that was in the kitchen, but I, I went in the kitchen sometime, you know, but I know how to cook. Uh, how else would I know if I didn't watch mother? But uh, there's really nothing that that she's cooked that I can't do today. I I still I still cook when I want to. It's a it's by choice now. I don't have to. You know, I, if I don't want to, I ain't gotta cook. <laughs> it's all by choice. But yeah, I learned from my mama. My mama used to say, "You was jealous if you cut up an onion." And it made you cry. She said you was jealous. <laughs> I guess everybody jealous. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> yeah, because I sure cry. But my mama didn't. My mama cut that onion up and not one tear. I'd be like, I won't get out the house, you know. Mm. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if that was just her thing because she knew the onion wasn't going to make her cry. <laughs> you know, but she didn't. She cut them seasoning up. And I used to just watch, you know, watch mama cook all types of stuff. You know, I mean, coon. I just see my grandfather used to raccoon. get them raccoons, man. Oh, my God. I never liked it. It's something that you can tell you're tasting a wild animal. It's like a taut taste. The meat is dark. And what they would do, they would put a touch of vinegar and milk and just let it sit and let it soak. And then they would fix it. But I never did. You know, once you saw an animal being slaughtered. I mean, I, I ate the chicken, but... I didn't want no coon or no goat. I used to see a, you know, goat. My grandfather used to always come in there with, oh my, yeah, I, I don't care. I never did care. Alligator. My father-in-law like called an alligator. The alligator in the middle of the floor, he's six feet long. He got his, his, his snout all wrapped up and then his tail flapping and slapping the mess out of everybody. In the <laughs> this, house? This alligator messed up in the middle of the floor in the house. <laughs> he trying to to skin the alligator with just his mouth tied. I said, you got to bolt that thing down. He's going to run all through the house. But they had dragged him a little bit, and he was coming to life. And all I remember was that tail flopping. Oh, my goodness. I got out of there. <laughs> but when after they fried some of the tail in, like, nuggets, every time I chewed, it got bigger. Just like you're eating a <laughs> cotton ball. Every time I chewed, that alligator got bigger. I, could, I didn't like that. And ever since that, I never tasted again. Now, he tricked me into eating a muskrat. Ah, yeah, it was like a Nutri-Rat. Uh-huh. The skin, it tastes just like a rabbit. Have you ever ate rabbit? No, I haven't. Okay, it's dark. So as soon as I, I bit into the meat, I knew it was something different. But I had already eaten it, and I liked it. But I never ate it again. <laughs> Cause it, cause I just ate it at this, yeah. A muskrat, yeah, like a neutral rat, like them big old rats look like a yeah, I know, like I know a possum. Rats. Oh my god, yeah, I, I ate that. I go to Palace Cafe. I like I like the alligator that they got there. You like it? What is what, yeah. what they make it? What they they fry? It? No, okay, they fried. they probably stew it or something. Now, yeah, see, could be different. See, see, like I said, that the texture of it, I didn't care for it, but that was the only way that I attempted to eat it, and I never tried it again. So it may be different. Uh, Christopher was with his mom the other night, and he said he ate alligator for the first time, and he liked it. That was at Acme. So what's your favorite part of Louisiana culture? Hmm. Well, I like all the festivals, you know, mm -hmm. the jazz fest, the essence fest, 
uh, outdoor festivals. You know, we got the Shell Met Festival, Crawfish Festival going on now. Um, I like different functions like that where you have music, outdoors, activities. So what was yeah. your memory uh, from uh, the Oh, Lord, I live right around the corner here. It's mm-hmm. been going on for the past 50 years, and I've been right here 43 of them 50 years. Uh, back in the day when I used to go there, it was just $5 to get in. You could get in with your ice chest full of everything you want, with your blankets, you know, and your umbrella and your chairs. And we just sit out there in the middle of that field for hours, five bucks. Now it's like 70 bucks to get in there. <laughs> you couldn't go and pay $60 to see one of those persons. Yeah. Al Jarreau, uh, you know, a Lenny Kravitz, uh, uh, Patty LaBelle, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Wilson. You can't, you know, that's a treat when you think about it. So you can walk around to all these different venues and see all these different cultures way from different parts of the world. You know, what an experience. I'm thinking about going yeah. this year. So I'll come over. Yeah, it's by supposed you. to come in October. It's supposed to be here in October. Because right now, this would be the last weekend. Right now, today. Yeah. Today and tomorrow would be the last weekend. Yes. And beautiful weather. Usually in New Orleans during April, it would storm and rain it back around there at that fairgrounds. It would be sloppy. Oh my God. You know, I I, I had girlfriends that come in every year from California and they would love that. Nasty, soft no. mud through their toes. And I, I just couldn't hang with them. Uh, they will go and slop in that water, slide in that mud, and they come here from head to toe, just manure down, because that's what's in that dirt, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And they love it. You know, Betty and Teresa and Fran, man, they live for the Jazz Fest, you know? Uh, but like I said, it's, it's different now. Um, since this pandemic, it was the first time they hadn't had anything, but it would have been going on right now. Tomorrow, Sunday, May 2nd would have been the last weekend. But uh, they're talking about coming back in October, which would be something to see. Whereas, you know, and I have no bad hot weather or what have you, you know, in October. So, because I sit right here on my porch because the fairgrounds is right behind me. Speaking up on Louisiana culture again, do you have any knowledge on the Mardi Gras Indians? Paul told me to ask you this question. Well, knowledge. Well, I have a suit here. <laughs> I once dated a chief, chief of the Flaming Arrows. They call him Big Chief Buck. And uh, he sews these extravagant suits every year. And what really took me back was from the time that I met Ronnie in 95, the first suit he, he created was red. <clears throat> did a white one, then did a lime green one in 97. That's the one that I have here. I started to get interested in it and I wanted to know how to sew it. So he started to show me how he put the beads and the pearls and the rhinestones and all that to create his design. He started with a plain piece of thin, thin, thin cardboard that is flexible. And he'd take and draw a pattern of what he's going to illustrate on his suit and he would draw. I mean, he would uh, sew. It didn't glue nothing. He sewed it on. He only glued if he had to attach something, feathers or something. But every one of those sequins and pearls were individually sewed on. And it may it'd take a year. 
If you start the day after Mardi Gras, the year before, it takes a year. And we used to come here and sew on them suits two, three hours every day. I did a documentary. I mean, when Ronnie made a suit from the piece of cardboard to the, the actual finished product. And Katrina, of course, took those videos. Never would have thought, but uh, that was something that can't, can't get back. I had videoed it all and lost the video. They had this other culture too, when it is the skeletons. And I, mm. the, the skeletons used to come out to scare the kids or however. You, I never really was saw the skeletons, and, but on TV. But uh, I've only just been around just the Mardi Gras Indians. Uh, back in the day, my Peter, your papa used to. Love to follow them Indians. That was, I, and I didn't like it because at one time they used to fight and they would meet up with the gangs with the flag boy and the you know, second chief. And you had to have a permission to, to meet the chief. And so it used to be a whole bunch of humbug and stuff back in the day. But it got a bit more humble now. That's something I never thought I'd be you know, involved in. But until I met somebody that was a chief. But it was good. I, I I liked it. They thought I was the queen. Because I used to have my feathers on, too. <laughs> <laughs> what does being a chief mean? You know? Well, that's like a knucklehead thinking that he's the lead or something. That's all that is. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the chief is, you know, being the leader. Uh, he's uh, the hedgehog. Uh, you know, he's, uh, they used to have an old saying, everybody want to be a a chief and not an Indian, you know? <laughs> everybody can't be the chief. Chief got one spot. You know, everybody mm -hmm. could be an Indian. But everybody can't be the chief. So it's it's like a... Like a status thing? Yes, you grow, you grow into that spot. You don't just become a chief. It's from knowledge of experiencing this and showing what you have done through the years. And you don't just remain a chief because they, they do have second chiefs, which means that it's just like in a pad with women miss america you got the first run up if he can't continue the job then you got the second chief to step in that's that you know that's what he was said to me i never really read about it but for me you know being exposed to this guy that i was involved with with the indians that's what i learned you know and some some chiefs keep their status of being a chief until they die you know Tudor in montana was a big time chief here in new orleans you know, Tudor's been deceased, but now his son has stepped in and continued his daddy's legacy. So yeah, that's how it's passed down from some generations. Some, some, some have, you know, sons that that's their job. That's what they do. You know, some, you know, they teach a school, show other kids who's interested how to make these things. You know, mm -hmm. if they involve, have them to create their own vision of what they want to create in their own suit you see and i used to see ronnie would take that fine suit may cost him 10 12 15 000 and burn it the next day uh-huh oh yeah it ain't no hundreds it's thousands because you got some of those rhinestones on there 25 of them cost 50 bucks so he got hundreds of them on there he's got hundreds of the design on there just with the rhinestones. And I can show you in one spot, he got a ton of them right there. So, yeah. I mean, and it, it's rhinestone front and back. 
And I couldn't understand that. Why you putting them on the back? He said, well, if somebody see me from the back, they see the rhinestones too. He didn't want nothing to not be covered. Oh yeah, it's in the thousands. And I literally saw Ronnie torch the suit. I went, really? He said, well, I can't wear it again. I'm like, don't you make a new suit? Every year at Carnival Time, they make a new suit. So when I was with him, I've seen him create eight suits. And one of them was in, in the museum, a beautiful white one. And he had one of them that looked like eyes. I didn't like that suit. It had eyes all over it, all over the suit. And he would have it hanging. And you look up at night and look like all them eyes was on you. That was the most haunting suit. Well, he told one of these flag boys or, or wild boys that he could use the apron part and the stick that he used. He wanted to be up in some Congo thing he was in. He tore the suit up. <laughs> it was like to shreds. We was wondering, what was he doing? Did somebody have a switchblade and was hitting him? It was raggedy. So when Ronnie saw that, he burned the whole suit up. So I've seen him torch two suits. So I told him, don't do that no more. You could donate them, but he didn't want nobody to wear his suit. The chief don't do that. You know, so and that, that, that was just their way. You don't loan it to somebody else because somebody on the street will show perch out. Boy, you got on big chief buck. <laughs> See, and that's a no-no. You know, no chief ain't gonna let you do call him out like that. See, seeing that they had they had this pride that they actually thought they was Indian chiefs. You know, some of them really do. <laughs> they talk that that language where they 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 sing these these uh songs, you know, and they got some meaning to them from, you know, whatever they, the meaning is or why they sing it. And some of them sound like a, a tribute to the ones that is dead, that, you know, that's deceased. And, and the, you know, they got their own little harmony that they actually sing these tunes, sing these prayers. And they, they got this moan that it just make you get cheer bumps. Yeah. But they really enter the culture of the Mardi Gras Indians here in the city, just like they talk about you know, voodoo, and they talk about Marie Laveau, and they talk about all these different things in the culture of New Orleans, you know. They think that we are spook town. But, I mean, they got places like that because of people that was born here. You know, mm. Marie Laveau supposed to have been some big-time priestess queen that, you know, performed uh, rituals on people, you know. You take and you pull something in your hair and bring it to her, and she can make you go bald-headed, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> people believe that. Superstitious. You know, when we was, my grandmother used to always say, don't step on that crack and you're going to break your back. Don't walk underneath that ladder. You know, don't sweep me with that broom. I'm going to go to jail. So you got to yeah. spit on the broom. Yeah, they'll just tell us. The police come and get you. And we used to be screaming like fools. Oh, I won't go to jail. So you got to spit on the broom. So I'll go to jail. <laughs> and I don't like to split a pole. If I'm walking down the street, some people let other people get between you. I want to say you connected and you're walking together, pleat your block. Yeah, all those type of things. And I'm like that with, with well, I, I, oh, no, you can't split that. I'll go back around the whole block before I let him continue. <laughs> yeah, right now. He'd be laughing at me. I said, but my grandma, and it's the truth. I'm superstitious to that. That I don't know. Uh, that's how I, I, I believed it. So what make you think I don't believe it now? I believe that crazy stuff. 
right now. <laughs> so would you say that New Orleans culture is different from, I guess, other cities in Louisiana? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why a lot of people want to come here. I mean, it's like we are free spirit place. You know, mm. we are. We are free spirit place. People come here and just to look at our graveyards. I mean, they used to think there were a little bit of houses, but those little bit of concrete things built in. You know, they had people that thought that their family should have been sacred when they were burying them in the ground. So instead of just keeping them exposed like that, they would build these huts over them. So you see, that's all you see in graveyards. You don't see no other grave site and nowhere else. Check that out, but New Orleans with them little houses. Have you ever been in the place? Have you ever seen that? Like a little mausoleum. No, mm -hmm. only the culture of New Orleans. My mom and dad is right over here, St. Louis number three, which is right behind my house. And they had three busloads of people just going to walk through the graveyard just to see the, the grave sites. Never seen they people like, walk in graveyards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take your pictures. And I'm in a, and I'm like, where else do you see that at? But in New Orleans, where else do you see people being bust? And they came with a tour guide telling them about stories and in front of different places in New Orleans. But we got the Mint, which is a big, uh, it's like a museum here in New Orleans, right off of Dicketa and Esplanade. They had things that happened back then in the day, but people believe it's supernatural. You know, well, things occurred and people are curious about that. So they tell stories about it and then they give tours. And people come down by the busloads to see that. Yeah, they do. We just saw that just today. I said, look at all the people just to come and sightsee through St. Louis number three gravesite. You know, all the time. And so, plenty of people out getting snowballs and all that today. Oh, yeah. I want, see, that's what I want right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, getting snowballs. We bought it by the bucket. We got a bucket full. We bought uh, the ice cream flavor, bubble gum, and... Uh, I like a uh, wild cherry. <laughs> so like we bought it. Apple. We bought it by the bucket, and we just you know, oh green apple, green I like apple, the most sour flavors. I'm gonna have to okay. Well, I'm gonna have to get you something to put in the refrigerator. Yeah, so we do we do those kind of things. Well, we go out and enjoy the, the day. You know, go a little riding through the city park. Or, you know, they had so much activities going today. Uh, buy you. St. John, they got a fair going on right now on the neutral ground. I didn't even know about it. I guess those are private things that people have, you know, because you still don't have that big, big crowd, you know. Yeah. They got people scattered that they foot, you know, and I saw they would sell little jewelry and little stuff like that. But it looked to be like it was a private thing because it was roped off. It's just yeah. that they were just outside. What I noticed mm -hmm. about when I went last time, I went in December, twenty twenty. Okay, and that's the height <clears throat> of the pandemic, and so. Oh yeah, that's right, baby. It's I found sure it crazy enough. that I saw party buses, you know, still ride around the city on Canal Street. That's right. They, that's right. They just don't stop. <laughs> so you know, like something like I said, some people ignored it, some people, but they had the party buses, and you're right. Um, and now they got the different type of party bus. Tell I ain't thinking, I don't think it's a cool one because you're exposed to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, they got chairs on the back, on the back of a somebody's truck, and these people sitting there 
with drinks. And I said, if they stop at a, you know, stop sign, a red light, that might go hit them up on each side. <laughs> Give it up. Because <laughs> that happens in New Orleans, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, but they wasn't in no, they wasn't secure to me. You know, the ladies had their purses between their feet because they're in this open area that they couldn't put it nowhere. But where they had it, I'm like, now nah, look at this. And that was like December, January when we was talking about that. And it was chilly and they was in the party bus. <laughs> so I see more of them now for adults than I used to see with the children, the party buses. Mm -hmm. Crazy, but it's true. <laughs> So, this will probably be the last question for the day, depending okay. on where it goes. But how was your first time leaving New Orleans? When was your first time leaving New Orleans? Ah, well, my first time going anywhere is really far was to the UAE. Mm -hmm. Well, I went to Dubai, uh, November, uh, twenty fifteen, and that was an experience. Uh, Something that I never thought that I would be doing because I didn't even know what Dubai was. Um, when my son said it to me, he said, well, mama, just go look it up. And I didn't even know how to spell it. Right. <laughs> so he, he sends a little five letter word to me, Dubai. And I was taken by the beautiful pictures. But to actually see those actual pictures in person was really exhilarating. I mean, something, you know, I, when I came back to the States and told people where I had been, a lot of people that I know had never been there before and always, that's something on their wish list, but I've been there twice. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. But uh, before that, in 1979 was the very first time that I ever went outside of, you know, the United States was to Cancun, Mexico, you know, that was a, I mean, to enter uh, to Jamaica. We went to um, to Jamaica with some girlfriends back in the day. And that was my, my girlfriend, Patricia. That was my first time riding in a plane. And it was with her and two other friends. And then after that, it was Cancun. So we were doing it like every other year. And then, you know, we did that. Cancun, Jamaica. I went to Ocho Rios. Um, Virgin Islands, uh, and then after that, Dubai. Du Dubai is on top of the list from all of that. Ain't no other place like that. No yeah. other place like that in the world. And it's an experience. I rode the camel. Uh, my son brought me to Oman and Abu Dhabi. I mean, just an ex overall experience. And I am going to be doing it again, if not the end of this year, next year for sure with two of my siblings that we're going to go to Dubai together. So we're going to go back. Yeah. And that'll be my third trip, but I, I'm going to go back. Well, that was the lunchtime for podcast. Y'all had a great time talking to my grandmama. Anything else you want to say? Yeah. I love you. And you keep up the good work and I want you to reach, keep reaching high, high and higher. Get your destination because you know where you're at. If you're focused on it, all you got to do is reach it and get it. That's what I want for you. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I love you. <laughs> That's my mo'kuf from New Orleans. That was Lunchtime Fully Podcast, y'all. Peace.